0: You know, several months ago, my family and I did an escape room together. And it was a, a, a really fun time. And this room that we did started with us being blindfolded and handcuffed. And we were given 60 minutes to escape the room. And I am standing here today. I got out. I left that man, but I got out. No, I'm just joking. But you know what? Here's the reality it took us several helps. I'm just saying. I'm not going to lie. But one of the greatest escape artists of all time was a man by the name of Harry Houdini. He was, he was around in the early 1900s. He was a mastermind of illusions and death-defying escapes. And many of his acts included handcuffs, ropes, chains, and even straitjackets. Some of his top escapes, in my opinion, was first of all the milk can escape. This was a Houdini original act, and the milk can that he used was one of the big tricks. He was handcuffed and sealed inside an oversized milk can that was filled with water. And failure to escape meant drowning. At least, that's what he uh, publicized. And adding to the suspense, he would ask everybody in the audience to hold their breath as long as they could. And as they would lose their ability to hold their breath, he would just stay in the water for another minute and a minute and a minute, wow in the crowd. Another one of his big escape acts was the suspended straight jacket escape. Here he's strapped in a standard regulation straight jacket and suspended by his ankles from a tall building or a crane that would lift him high above everybody else. And Houdini made his escape in full view of his audience as they were on the street watching him from below. And it would only take him three minutes to break free. But what a head rush and terrifying reminder of one's own mortality. And then there was the Chinese water torture that was a combination of these. This is also known as the Houdini upside down trick. This was a combination of the milk can and the straitjacket being lifted up. He would be lowered into water upside down, but tied by his ankles. And he was given only a certain amount of time in the water to break free. And He could always do it within two minutes. And if he didn't, he had one of his helpers with an axe standing by his side to break the glass. You know, no, no joke, Houdini was amazing with his escape tricks. And in this series, we are dealing with thorns that we started talking about last week that life just throws at us, that Paul mentions and talks about in 2 Corinthians. And when life gives us thorns, don't you wish... That like Houdini, you had the ability of an escape artist. That you could just break free from the pain and the disappointment that life sometimes just throws at you. Sometimes life just seems like it makes us all bound up. We're broken. We're beaten. And we're pleading for God, for help. We're begging for help. And sometimes, just sometimes, it seems if you're like me, that these pleading and these beggings that we give to God just echoes out into the night sky, never to be heard. It seems like we never receive a response, that we never receive any help. And sometimes we're left wondering, where is God? Have you ever been there? When these thorns hurt so bad, and it just seems like your prayers are going unanswered. It just seems like they're falling on deaf ears. But did you know that the Apostle Paul had these same feelings? Paul was real. He lived, he breathed, he walked, he journeyed, and he experienced these same feelings. Just look at these words as he continues on talking about these thorns that we started talking about last week. In 2 Corinthians 12.8, the Apostle Paul writes this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Three times he says, I begged God, please take it from me. And the Greek word used here for thorn could have meant anything from a splinter or a fish hook to something larger to impale or use in an execution. But the thorn that Paul is talking about here is most likely figurative. The issue is not the thorn. The issue is what the thorn represents. The issue is what it causes in our life. Heartache. Heartache pain, difficulty. And whatever thorn you have in your life, whether it's right now or what you've had in the past or what may be coming tomorrow, it's just like life beats you down. And the problem with these thorns is it's continual aggravation. It just doesn't let up. It just beats you down and beats you down. And for Paul, there were several possibilities of what this thorn could be. Maybe it was he was being tortured by his sinful nature. Paul was a murderer. Before he became a follower of Christ, he was a murderer. He made many poor choices. And maybe his thorn was a creation of his own past poor choices that he would just brought into his life and were just tormenting him of the consequences Or it could have been a physical ailment of some sort. Maybe an illness or something else that he was dealing with that it just wasn't going away. Or the most common view, most widely believed view of his thorn, is it could be relational. Other people in his life. Last week we talked about the people in Corinth and how they were all interested and focused on their pride and one-upping each other. Paul also had to deal with the people known as the Judaizers. This was a group of believers back in the day. Every time Paul would go into an area and preach and teach and bring people to Christ and he would move on to the next city and town, this group would follow him behind him and kind of correct everything that Paul taught and they became a big pain in the rear for him. And sometimes in our life, we have thorns in our flesh. Sometimes we create them by our own poor choices. Sometimes it's the physical situations. And sometimes there's just people in our life that become thorns for us. But in some level, we have thorns in our life that are just an aggravation that won't let go. And at first for Paul, he thought this thorn was a distraction to serve God. He thought this thorn was pulling him away from the ability to do what God wanted him to do. But after begging with God, after three times of pleading to God to take it away, he realized something. That maybe, just maybe, this thorn had a crucial importance in his journey. That maybe, just maybe, there was a reason that God was allowing this. That God was choosing not to remove it. You know, the Greek word that Paul uses here for pleaded is used 109 times throughout the New Testament. And this is the only time it's ever used for petitionary prayer, begging and pleading God to come through. And I'm sure we all have an understanding of the emotions that Paul is experiencing right now. Like him, we plead. We beg. God, take this away from me. Remove this pain. Remove this frustration. Take it away. And the intensity of some of the thorns that we face seem unbearable, leaving us wondering, am I alone in this battle? Is there anybody there with me? Is God anywhere there? We're just wondering, is there light at the end of this tunnel? Where will this end? Have you been there? Are you there now? In this one verse of 2 Corinthians 12 8, we learn two very important things that Paul acknowledges. Jot these down down in your notes. Number one, we learn that the thorn was intense. The thorn was very intense. From what we see in Paul's words, is that this wasn't a little nuisance, like a fly buzzing around that you're just trying to swat away from your head. It wasn't that type of a nuisance. This was to the point of being unbearable. He couldn't control it anymore. He couldn't help it. He wanted wanted it out of his life. It's like when you go to a doctor and they ask you to rate their pain one to 10 and you give it a 12, that's Paul right now. He's saying it's a 12 and I want it out of my life. And sometimes in our life, in our journey, we have thorns that are so intense, we just don't know which way to turn or what to do. Which is very important to know The second thing that Paul acknowledges in this one verse, and that is there is only one person who can remove it. Only one. Last week, we talked about pride. And too many times we allow our pride to keep us from getting the help that we need. And at some point we need to realize a fundamental truth and that is true relief only comes from one source and his name is Jesus Christ, not you. He's the source of relief. You know back when I was in college, I in Cincinnati, I lived in an apartment in northern Kentucky. And one summer night, I was driving from my apartment towards Cincinnati, going through some back small town roads. And I had the windows down because it was a nice, cool evening. And all of a sudden, I heard this clunk, 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 clunk. And I was wondering what that was. And so I did my best Ace Ventura impression. I stuck my head out the window as I was driving, trying to figure out what all that clunking was. And I just couldn't figure it out. So I pulled into a little Unimart. I got out out of my car. And there sticking out of my front tire was a yo-yo. Who runs over a yo-yo? I do. (laughs) And so let me just tell you right now, I am not a very good person with my hands, with mechanic stuff and things like that. But I thought, I got this. I'm good. So I got out of my car. I got my little um, uh, jack for the car that comes with it. I jacked up my car. And I made one fundamental mistake because I... I don't always want to do things right. I just want to get them done. And so I parked on a little bit of an incline. And you're supposed to be flat, right? Yeah. So I was on this incline, and I unbolted the, the wheel, and as soon as I pulled that wheel off, the jack snapped in half, and the car fell to the ground. And here I am at 9 o'clock at night in this little Unimar thinking, oh, my goodness, what do I do now? I am in so big trouble. Thankfully, at that moment, this guy walks out of the Unimart and he sees my um, distress and he goes, I have a nice jack, I got this. And he grabbed out his car and helped me jack up my car and finish the job. But you know what the reality is? Sometimes in life, we think we've got this, but we really don't. We just don't. And when we realize that we don't, then we start pleading. Why is it, my friends, that we always wait until things get really, really bad before we seek help? Do you ever wonder why that? Why is it we wait until the last second before we get help? At some point in your life, we just need to understand and accept the fact that you do not have the control. Jesus does. And since you are not in control and neither am I, we don't have the relief. Jesus does. But yet when we get into this pleading mode, we find that God tends to answer our prayers in one of three ways. He really does. God always provides an answer but he answers in one of three ways. Jot these down. The first way that God tends to answer prayers is with a yes. Sometimes God does say yes. And in 2 Corinthians 1, as referenced in your notes, it talks about how God is faithful. His promises are true. He always comes through. Just read the Bible. He always comes through on his word. And at the end of our prayers, we use a word, we tend to use a word, Amen. And did you know in English, amen translates as so be it. And when you pray and you say that, what you're saying is, God, whatever you choose to do, whichever path you determine, whatever tomorrow brings, so be it. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to release that type of control, saying, God, I don't got this, but you do? God's got this. When we pray, my friends, we need to have the confidence that God is faithful, that God is just. And he will always, he will always take care of you. He will take care of us. He won't always provide what we want, but he's going to provide what you need. I am the father of three boys. And although my heart softens many times and I give in and I give them what they want, you better believe I am less worried about them getting what they want right now and what feels good in the moment. I am more concerned with the path they take long term. That's my heart. I don't always get it right, but that's my heart. And the Bible says that God is our father. And so as our father, he is not concerned with you having momentary joy and happiness in this moment. You know what he really desires? is your future. He desires a long-term health of you and me. You know, several years ago, I was doing a chapel service for the Buffalo Bills football team. And I said that God is not really concerned with the outcome of this game. And I'm a Steelers fan. I already know what side God's on. (laughs) But God's not rooting for some team because that's our wants. God is concerned what is best for you. God is concerned about what tomorrow brings and what you choose to do. In life, we always do this. We tend to focus our prayers on what we want in that moment. And God's guys, can you adjust your focus? Just Adjust your focus to me. And see what I have for you down the road. God has something better than what you could ever imagine. You know, sometimes God says yes. Sometimes he says yes. But sometimes... Sometimes he does say no. As referenced in your notes, Psalms 32, 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. In other words, not every path you choose is the right path. Not every step you take is the right step. We have a tendency to make some false steps in our life that just brings unfortunate consequences for us. And God's deepest desire is to guide us on a path towards his heart, his blessings, his kingdom, not just for now, but for all eternity. That's his heart. That's his desire. And when he says no, what I believe he's ultimately saying is I have something better for you. I have something better for you. You know, back when I was in high school, my biggest fear internally and emotionally and spiritually was being alone. Truth be told, I was scared to death of being alone. And so in those moments, I would gravitate towards relationships, unhealthy relationships. Why? Because I was more scared of being alone than I was trying to find the right person for my life. And in high school, I was in the dating relationship. And I thought, okay, this is the person to spend the rest of my life with, even though it was an unhealthy relationship. And at our senior prom, I proposed to her. I went to Walmart and got the best diamond ring Walmart could provide. You could almost see the diamond on that thing. <laughs> and just a few short months later, when I was in college, she came to school. To, she came up to visit me to break up with me. And I found out she was actually pregnant from another guy. I can't tell you the hurt and the pain and the loneliness I felt in those months leading after that. I was broken. But I can tell you right now, if I stayed on that same journey, I would not be on the stage today. I would not be here with you at impact. But, you know, God told me no that day. You know why? Because he had something better for me. And a couple years down the road, he brought Shelly into my life, and she just blew me away. She keeps me on track. See, you should be thankful because she's, the, she's what really keeps me on straight. She really is. But, you know, sometimes God says no. Why? Because he has something better for you. Just follow his heart. Sometimes God says no. But, you know, the third answer he sometimes gives to us Sometimes he says, wait. Sometimes he says to wait. The two verses referenced in your notes, Psalm 27, 14, tells us to wait on the Lord, to be strong and take heart. God will come through. As I already mentioned a few moments ago, we see all throughout the Bible how God always comes through for us. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The way he came through for Moses and Abraham and and all the people in the Old Testament and Paul and all the people in the New Testament is the same way he comes through for us today. He is alive and real, but we need to wait on him. Hosea 12.6 says that you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. But if you're like me, Let's be honest for a moment. If you're like me, you hate to wait. Anybody with me on that? I hate to wait. Just ask my wife, patience is not one of my strongholds. See me at a stoplight or in heavy traffic. Patience is not my stronghold. We hate waiting. But there are so many times that God answers prayers by saying, just wait. Just wait. In the Bible, we see so many stories of people having to wait on God. We, we think we, today we think we deserve something different. That God should just come through for us at the snap of a, of a finger. But just all throughout the Bible, all the greats of the Bible that we read about, at some point in their life, they had to wait on God. Noah had to wait for God like a hundred years for the water to come to bring the flood and the ark that he was building. Abraham had to wait on God even before he had children when he was in his 90s that he would become the father of all nations. Moses wandered through the desert waiting for the promised land. Joseph was taken into slavery and waited for reconciliation with his brothers for 40 years. David, waiting to become the next king of Israel, ran from persecution over and over again. Mary and Martha in the New Testament waited for Jesus to come to raise Lazarus from the dead. All throughout the Bible, we see people waiting on God to come through. So what makes you think we're any different? What makes you think we deserve different? Through these many stories, of these people waiting. You know what we learn? Waiting helps us grow. I don't like it. I'm not admitting that I enjoy it. But waiting helps us grow. Waiting reveals our true motives. Waiting has the ability of bringing the best and worst out of us. It showcases our true character and who we really are. Why? Because waiting builds patience. Knowing that I'm not really in control. It's not really about me and what I can do. It's about God coming through. And as it builds patience, it also builds anticipation. You know what? The more I live, the more I long for eternity. The more I long to see God face to face. The more I long to walk on those streets of gold. Because I don't know about you, but this world is broken and it just brings hurt and pain. And I want Jesus. Waiting has the ability to build that anticipation in our life as it builds and transforms our character. As we wait, we find ourselves trusting God more and becoming more and more like him. That is our ultimate goal in our life, to become more and more like Jesus. And as we wait, you know what ultimately it really does? It builds our intimacy and our dependency on God. Because waiting causes us to say, God, I, I can't do this. I need you to come through. And we find ourselves growing closer with him. And pleading with God is a constant emotional struggle that many of us um, seek the relief from the thorns in our, that we face in life. And we plead to God, but here's, a, here's something you need to know. Jesus, the Son of God, He's been there. He's done that. Jesus came from His throne in heaven and came to this world not just to die on the cross, but He came to this world to walk this life with us. He's felt those emotions. He's felt that pain. Just look at these verses from Jesus about Jesus just before he was crucified on the cross. In Mark 14, Jesus in the garden when he was praying, it says he was going a little farther. He fell to the ground. He was overwhelmed with emotions. And he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And Jesus prayed this prayer. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. And then on the cross, just before he died, about three in the afternoon, Matthew 27, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I bet we've all prayed prayers very similar to that. God, if you can take this from me, please do. And in the moments when the thorns are so intense, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you given up on me? What we see here is the reality that the pain we experience, the struggles that we face, Jesus, he's been there. And he's done that. You know, so many times in my life, I found myself in exploration environments, whether it's whitewater rafting or caving or rappelling or hiking. And when I have had a guide with me, that has been uh, so great because they have given me a sense of security that this person has been down these waters before. This person has journeyed through this trail before. They've gone before me, and because they know what they're getting into, I trust them. And this gave me a sense of security. You know, whatever you are facing, Jesus has been there. He has done that. He has gone before us. But here's a very important question. Do you trust him? One of the most important questions you can ever ask yourself, honestly, do I trust Jesus? Trusting Jesus provides a sense of security with whatever you are facing, whatever tomorrow may bring, what thorns you may have. Trust builds security. And in the depths of our soul, we are all longing for security, aren't we not? Knowing that it will be okay. No matter what tomorrow may bring, it will be okay. And security is founded on trust. But trust is one of the most fragile things this world has ever known because it takes a lifetime to build and one small pebble to destroy it. And so often we struggle with trust because in our past, at some point, someone broke trust with us. And we are relational people. God designed us that way. And so every relationship that you have ever had always impacts and affects your future relationships. They build upon each other. And so in your past, if trust has been broken, you will now find yourself struggling with trust in future relationships if you do not deal with it in a healthy way. And we just continue it on until we find a way to heal from it and deal with it. And the truth is, if you have not dealt with broken trust in your past, at some level, I bet you struggle with trusting Jesus. Because when trust is broken, we struggle with trusting Jesus. And when that falls apart, our sense of security begins to fade. And that's when we really wrestle with, where are you, God? And at some point, if you want to find true security in your heart, no matter what thorns you face in life, you need to trust Jesus. Because let me promise you something. Unlike how others have failed you in your past, Jesus will never fail you. I believe in what the Bible says, and I believe what I see in the scriptures, that time and time again, God has always come through. And to build this relationship of trust, it's so important to understand what trusting him really means. The first thing is trusting him means that he is your Lord. He is your Lord. Psalm 31, verse 14 says, But I trust in you, Lord. I say that you are are my God. In its most basic sense, Lord means someone who has power or authority or influence over you. So who is that in your life that has the power and authority and influences you and your decisions and the choices that you make? You know, many years ago, I went on a safari in Africa. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And this one evening, I went on a night drive to see the animals at night. And we were driving around on this two-hour journey. And we stopped on a bridge to take a break halfway through this journey. And we stopped on a bridge so that the animals could not sneak up on you. They could only come one or two ways. So the armed armed guards could keep an eye on the animals that were out there. But at this point in my journey, I have yet to see a lion. And I wanted to see a lion. If I'm in Africa, I'm going to see a lion. So I jumped off the the back of the Jeep. I had my bologna sandwich that I packed, and I walked away from the Jeep because I wanted my eyes to adjust to see if I could see what's out there in the distance because I heard the animals howling and making their noises. And while I was out there eating my bologna sandwich, looking off in the distance, I saw a shadowy figure run across the bridge. And I stopped and I looked. And it didn't do anything. So I thought, oh, okay, everything's fine. It's just my eyes playing tricks on me. I started to gaze back out again, and I saw it again. This time, I started to get a little nervous. So I paused, I looked, and the shadowy figure kept moving towards me. So I did the back pedal. You know, walked back as quickly as I could to get back to the truck. And I got back there, and I saw two guys that were with me on that journey with their eyes just wide open, staring down to the end of the bridge. And I said, do you see something? They just nodded their heads. I called the guys with the guns. I jumped on the Jeep. I turned on the spotlight, and there about 30 feet away was a huge, massive hyena. I think he was trying to take my bologna sandwich. <laughs> but the reality is this. My fear of what that hyena could do to me controlled my actions, controlled what I did in that moment. Don't miss this point. Oftentimes, what we fear becomes our Lord. Those are the things that consume us, that controls us. We turn on the news and we get so scared of the society and what's going on all around us that that controls our decisions and our choices and our actions. We get scared of illnesses and that controls our decisions, our choices, and our actions. And we get so consumed with what's going on around us that we lose sight on the reality of who has control. Jesus does. And the Bible tells us to have fear of the Lord. Ultimate respect that ultimately he has the control. And so at some level in our journey, my friends, we have to get to a point in trusting Jesus enough to say that, you know what? He has the authority and the control and he's all powerful. So whatever I'm scared about in this world, he's got this. He's got this. But if he's my Lord, trusting him means something else. It means that you will follow his ways. This is a tough one for many of us. In other words, you are not going to get your way all the time. Truth be told, many times our way only leads to bad consequences and heartache in our life. In its most basic understanding, sin is making poor choices. It is making choices opposite of God's heart, his desire for our life. God's path brings blessings into our life. And oftentimes doing things my way, our way, just brings more hurt and pain, not just in my life, but those around me. And the reality is that the world is just one big old buffet full of so many choices. And when I was a kid, I loved going to buffets. Okay, who are you kidding? I still love going to buffets. And the unfortunate reality is that I rarely make good choices when I'm at a buffet. Because mama always told me that I gotta eat my greens. But you know what I often do at a buffet? I walk right past those greens, right to the greasy, starchy food because that's what tastes so yummy. And in life, we have a buffet of choices so many choices and directions to choose from. And like any food buffet, that buffet called life, we often don't choose the paths that are the best directions for us down the road. We often choose the paths that seem right, that feel right in the moment, that are quick fixes for today. And we're not even concerned about how they may affect us tomorrow. But for God, he's more focused on tomorrow He's more focused on what's down the road. He's focused on eternity. And his heart is not to give us what feels good for today. He wants to guide us on a path that provides blessings for all eternity. Just look what's written in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5-6. through six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Do you want to find security in your life? no matter what thorn life throws at you, it's all built on the foundation of trust that he is my God and I will follow his ways. Do you trust him? No matter what tomorrow brings, do you trust him? Are you able to say, God, so... Be it. Because you've got this. Even if you don't get the answer that you want, do you trust Him? Like Mercy Me sings in the song, Even If, that we named this uh, series after, they say, I know He is able. And I know he can save through the fire with his mighty hand. But even if he doesn't, my hope is in him alone. No matter what happens, can we say it is well with my soul? You know, in closing, Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago in the 1860s with a lovely family, a wife, Anna, and five children. Horatio invested heavily in real real estate along the shores of Lake Michigan. He was a prosperous man, and he was a devout Christian. But Horatio was no stranger to tears and tragedy. In 1870, life brought thorns into his life that began to turn his world upside down. His only son died with scarlet fever in 1871 at the age of four. Not even a year later, the great Chicago fire destroyed much of his investments and his life savings. With all the emotional toll on the family, Horatio decided to take his family on a special trip to England. Just before they set sail, a last-minute business problem made it necessary for Horatio to stay home. He convinced his wife and his four daughters to go on without him. The plan was for Horatio to catch another ship and join them just a few days after. Anna and their four daughters boarded the French ocean liner, the Ville Havre, to cross the Atlantic Ocean. About four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the Ville Havre collided with a powerful iron hauled Scottish ship. And suddenly, all those on the ship were in grave danger. Within approximately 12 minutes, the Ville d'Avrae slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including the four Spafford children. This was the worst naval tragedy until the Titanic. A sailor rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down spotted a woman floating on a piece of wreckage. It was Anna, still alive. He pulled her into the boat, and they were picked up by another large vessel, which nine days later landed them in Wales. From there, she wired her husband with a message which began, saved alone, what shall I do? Another another of the ship's survivors later recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. Horatio booked passage on the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife with a ship about four days out. The captain called Horatio to his cabin and told him, a careful reckoning has been made and I believe we are now passing the place where the Ville d'Avre sank. In that moment, while sailing over the watery grave of his four daughters, Horatio penned the words to the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. On those waters he wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul.